Well, body, before I begin uh, the sermon today, I just want to talk to you and encourage you as a congregation. I want to tell you that I, I miss you terribly. I cannot wait until we gather again. Uh, I want you to know that me, as well as the elders, are praying for you. And we desperately want to see you all. And we want to encourage you to trust in the sovereignty of God through all this and to realize that this didn't take God by surprise, that he has a purpose in this. He has a purpose in, in this in the world, in our nation, in our church, and in your life. And we also want to encourage you that this is an opportunity to fulfill our vision as a church, to love God, to take this time to develop your relationship with God one-on-one through, through the word and through prayer. I also want to fulfill our vision of loving one another. This is, this is a great opportunity to serve one another, to, to think outside the box and how we can love one another, whether it's through food or groceries or cards or FaceTime or, or just calling one another. I mean, th- think, of, think of all the time you have and maybe just take five minutes to call someone else in the church and encourage them. And an opportunity to love the world. This is... This is an unprecedented opportunity to really show how different the church is, how different believers are than the world around them. I also want you to know that the church is loosening up some money for, for uh, help for people both inside and outside the church, and you'll be getting an email regarding that this week. So if you know somebody that needs rent help or grocery help or utilities help, uh, let one of the elders know and hope that that will build a better relationship with that person so that you can have an opportunity to share the real hope, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if you will, just open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And take a moment and pray with me. Lord God, I I ask you to... Change us through the preaching of your word. You have ordained that this is the method through which you will speak to your people. And even though we are scattered in the various places on the island and off, I ask you to give us one heart and one mind. I ask you to keep the unity that we have in you, even though we're geographically separated. And I ask that you change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at chapter 4, starting in verse 12. God's word says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I'm going to pause there. I want us to notice and realize that there's a gap, a time gap between verses 11 and 12. If we look at other Gospels, we see that Jesus has been busy since he returned from the desert. He's been to Cana, Cana, and he has turned water into wine. He has even traveled to Jerusalem for the first time for the Passover, and he has turned over the money changers' tables. And he's even talked with Nicodemus that night about the necessity of being born again. And then he hears that John the Baptist has been arrested. He, he realizes that opposition is already starting, even at the beginning of his ministry. So he carefully withdraws to Galilee. But he doesn't withdraw out of fear or self-preservation. It is a quiet, planned withdrawal in order to proclaim something actually very loudly. When someone is running for office, they plan where they're going to announce their candidacy very carefully. Because where you are when you do that communicates very loudly to people who you are and what you're about. If you declare that you are for the blue-collar workers and for the union you might make your announcement in an auto plant or a manufacturing facility. If you want to declare that you're for educational reform, you might make your candidacy known and announce it in some type of school environment. If you want to declare that a major plank of your platform is health care reform, you might think of a hospital to announce your candidacy. Jesus withdraws to Galilee and sets up his home base in Capernaum where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali lived. And Matthew helps us to understand this by by quoting Isaiah 9. He helps us to understand that Jesus was declaring that he was the prophesied king of this new kingdom that was coming. That is why he quotes Isaiah 9.1 right here in our text. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, that shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A little later in that same chapter, if you remember your Bible, there's a very famous verse, a couple verses, that continue. For unto us a child is born. A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Isaiah 9 is prophesying the birth of a new king, 
over a new kingdom. And Jesus is fulfilling that 750-year-old prophecy by withdrawing to Galilee. He's proclaiming very loudly that he is inaugurating this new kingdom. A kingdom described in the Gospels as a growing kingdom. A spiritual kingdom here on earth where justice rules, where righteousness reigns, where others come first, where self-sacrifice is the norm, where forgiveness is a given and sin is to be mortified. It is a kingdom that in many ways is the reverse of what we experience now. In other words, it's, it's kind of an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus is going on to describe this kingdom in the next couple chapters, in, verses, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. But right here, he begins to tell us how to enter this upside-down kingdom. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, there's only one way to enter Christ's kingdom, this new kingdom, and that is through repentance. That is the creed of the new kingdom, repentance. Now, in one sense, Christianity is is one of the most inclusive religions to ever be practiced on earth. It welcomes, think about it, it welcomes Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, every nationality, every tongue, every color, whether you think of yourself as good or bad, moral or immoral, there's no limit to who can enter this kingdom. But there is only one way to enter, one requirement, and that is repentance. You have to be a repentant person. That's the only way into this new kingdom. The Greek word there, repent, that Jesus is using, Metaneo, it literally means to change one's perception, to change the way you see something. That's what that word means. To repent, therefore, is a fundamental wet difference, a fundamental change in the way you see yourself, a change in the way you look at your sin. We must see ourselves, we must see the sin in us as hideous. You begin to, to change and, and see those things that you used to do are distasteful. We must view ourselves as sinful. That is the change that happens. And when God gives you eyes to see yourself like that, when he changes your, your, your spiritual perception of yourself like that, it's an invitation into this new kingdom. A.W. Tozer wrote, God will take nine steps towards us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do the repenting for us. This is something that only you and only I can do. And to do it, three things must be present, three musts, if you will, of, of repentance. First, you must express sorrow over your sin. In true repentance, you must express real sorrow 
over your sin. Second Corinthians 7 tells us that there are actually two kinds of sorrow that well up in us when we sin. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorrow over being caught. It's sorrow over the consequences of your sin. It's, it's sorrow that is self-focused and looks a, a little like maybe self-pity in some, an embarrassment in the others, maybe shame in others. Whereas godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow you, you feel when you've hurt your wife or your, or your husband through, through your words, maybe. We've all experienced that. Where you've hurt your spouse. And then later, when you're removed from that situation, and you're sitting there, and you realize that the relationship is broken, and you begin to feel sorrow. Sorrow, not over the consequences of the distance so much, but over the relationship being broken. Have you ever... Have you ever experienced that? Maybe with a good friend, maybe maybe with even parents or children. Godly sorrow is sorrow over the broken relationship you have with God. And that must be present in repentance. The second must of true repentance is you must confess your sin. You must confess You must verbalize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. This is a non-negotiable. To enter the kingdom of God, you must confess. You must confess that you need forgiveness. You must confess that you cannot save yourself. You cannot get out of this situation yourself. Isn't it funny that we're all born that way as these self-savers, aren't we? We think we can do it. We think we can be good enough. We think we're even good to begin with, don't we? But the gospel of Jesus Christ begins where your effort ends. Only when you come to the point where you see your desperate position before God and you cry out in repentance for him to forgive your sin, to forgive your rebellion, and you accept that it was his obedience, not yours, that saves. And you embrace the fact that he absorbed your punishment on, on the cross and died for your sins. And you believe that he did raise from the dead, that saving resurrection. Then you will be saved. The third must of the true, of true repentance is you must turn from your sin. So you must express sorrow, you must confess your sin, and you must turn from your sin. Change is actually part of that Greek word, meta, means change. True repentance involves a change. In other words, you have a new distaste for what you had a taste for before. You have a new distaste for the sin. You have a new desire. A new desire for holiness, for right living. You have a new direction. And that direction is in 
is away from sin. You see, there must be visible manifestations of repentance for it to be true repentance. And this type of change is peppered throughout the, the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, we just have to, you don't have to go any further than these four brothers to see that. James and John were called sons of thunder, Boanerges. I think that that meant that they had, they were pretty angry people. Remember that time when they came back after sharing and that the, the town had rejected them and they want fire to be called down. And yet John, what do we think of John like now? He is the apostle of love. That's the change. Think, think of Zacchaeus, that wonderful story we find in, in Scripture. Here, here's this little, little greedy tax collector that encounters Christ and is transformed from the inside out pretty rapidly. And we see that he is no longer this greedy tax collector who has cheated people, but a generous giver. Even consider the Corinthian church. If you read through those two letters, you realize that, that the whole Corinthian church went through a repentance towards Paul. They turned from loathing Paul to longing to see him. They turned from rejecting Paul's apostolic authority to embracing it. They turned from being influenced by false teachers to casting them out. They turned from being proud and defensive about their sin to mourning over it. How about yourself this morning? What change has true repentance wrought in your life? This is a good opportunity to ponder that. Have you been changed, literally changed? Has your heart changed because you have truly repented? Have you gone from greedy to giver? Hider to confessor? Angry to loving? Proud to humble? Rejecting to embracing authority? True repentance always expresses itself in visible, tangible, and practical changes. You see, you might not be the person you want to be, but if you're a true believer, you're not the person you once were because you've entered this new kingdom. But it's interesting that repentance is not just for entrance into this new kingdom. It's a part of the new kingdom too, isn't it? It's not just for salvation, but it's for sanctification as well. We're called to live a lifestyle of repentance. When Martin Luther tacked those 95 theses on the church in Wittenberg, Germany, do you know what the first of his theses were? It was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. That was the first thesis he thought was most important. Luther knew what we all know. We don't stop sinning when we become believers, right? The poison of our sin has been absorbed in Christ and and it has no 
no power to kill us anymore. But the fangs of that snake just keep biting. The USA Today reported in a July issue that Justin Cliff had been bitten by a rattlesnake and lost part of his index finger as a result. That's not unusual in Arizona, but the surprising thing about the incident was the snake was dead when he bit him. It had been decapitated, but it still managed to sink its fangs into his finger. According to toxicologists at Good Samaritan Hospital in in Phoenix, Arizona, 15% of snake bites are the result of a dead snake. We as believers have to remember that sin still bites even after we give our life to the Lord in repentance of faith. It does not have the power to kill us anymore. But without constant repentance, it can hinder our relationship with the Lord and stunt our growth. So God's word, we are called over and over again to repent, right? I mean, one of those that we read pretty regularly here in this church is 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just think if we confessed our sin more than just a communion. Think about that. I actually, as I was putting this together, I thought, when is the next time our body is going to celebrate sweet communion together? Brothers and sisters, it could be weeks and weeks that drone into possibly months. If it is is your proclivity to just repent a communion, it could be months. What if we lived a life that was different than that? If repentance in our life happened on a daily basis, or let, let's even push in further. What about if it happened on an hourly basis? I'm sure that if you lived a life that was aware enough of your sin, you could repent every hour of the day. And we could push in further. Imagine what it would do to our life. It would keep us so focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would keep us so focused on his mercy and his grace. It would remind us again and again on an hourly basis of our need for forgiveness. It would, it would begin to counteract that poison of pride that is in all of us. It would forge an amazing intimacy with your Savior. Think of that. And it would increase your desire for evangelism. Have you ever thought about that? Confession would increase your desire to share your faith. An interesting study was done by the Barna Group recently to find out what could be done in churches today to help the average Christian share the gospel more frequently in their day-to-day lives. And you know what they found? It wasn't how many Bible studies you attended. It wasn't how involved you were in church. It wasn't if you were part of a small group or if, if you received evangelism training. The factor that caused most amount of evangel- evangelistic growth was simply an increase in confessing sin one to another 
and to Christ. Isn't that interesting? Do you have a desire to share your faith? Take up a lifestyle of repentance. So the creed of the new kingdom is repentance, but there's also the call of the new kingdom. And that's what we see in verses 18 through 22. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and encounters two sets of brothers. And he calls to them using two simple yet yet incredibly profound words. Follow me, right? Let's consider those two words together and what Jesus is really asking of those brothers and of us. And the first thing that we see in this call, that it is filled with purpose. If you see the words that follow his call to follow him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It is a call that comes with a purpose. The purpose is to share the treasure that you have been given with everyone. Many years ago, an Italian recluse was found dead in his house. He had lived his life frugally all his life, But when his friends were going through his house, they discovered 246 expensive violins stored up in the attic. Some even more valuable ones were found in the drawers of his bedroom. Virtually all his money had been spent on violins. Yet he did not play. So the world was robbed of the sounds of these amazing violins. Because he selfishly treasured those violins, the world never heard the music they were meant to play. It's interesting, it's even reported that the first violin of Stradivarius that he ever made was not played until 147 years after he completed it. Research shows that 60% of born-again Christians rarely share their faith. Some research estimates have that 95% of Christians, 95% of Christians have never led another person to faith. 95%. If that's true, that means that 95% of the world's spiritual violins have never been played. We say around our church pretty regularly, your relationship with Jesus is intensely personal, but it's never private. It's intensely personal. It's a unique relationship you have with your Heavenly Father. But that relationship is never meant to be kept quiet. Every disciple is a disciple maker. Every believer an evangelist. Every follower of Jesus a fisher of men. And Jesus used that metaphor intentionally. Because the qualities that make up a good fisherman I think make up a pretty good Evangelist. I think a fisherman has to be pretty courageous. It takes courage to go out in any and all types of weather. And just as it takes courage to fish for men. Depending on your situation, if you share the gospel, you're at least putting your reputation on the line, right? At least. Some of you will put your job on the line by doing that. Depending on where you live in the world, you're putting your life on the line by doing that. 
So being a fisher of men does take courage. A fisherman is also patient. Every time you reel in your line, there's not a fish on the hook or a lobster in the pot. So too, fisher of men have to be patient. Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, it takes patience to be an evangelist. A fisherman is also persistent, isn't he? A fisherman don't go to the same place, throw down the anchor, and wait for the fish to come to them, do they? They go from place to place, there and back again, over and over, until he finds the fish, where the fish are. So too fishers of men. They are persistent in finding people to share the gospel with. You know what it takes to be to share the gospel with somebody? It's, it's listening to them with spiritual ears, looking for an opportunity, a bridge, in order to take that conversation and make it a spiritual conversation. And that takes persistence. A fisherman is also knowledgeable. Think about it. They know the right bait for the right fish. They know the right equipment. They know the right time. They know the right place. They know about fish. So too, fishers of men. You have to know the gospel. You have to know people. You have to know how to share the gospel. Peter tells us to share the gospel with what? Gentleness and respect, right? Peter tells us, to be persuasive, to be winsome. Lastly, a fisherman has a willingness to fish. They're willing to go out even when they don't want to. I'm sure that there are lobstermen that wake up at 3.45 in the morning and go, I don't want to go out today. They won't tell us that but I'm sure there's some that think it. So too, fishers of men. There's not always a desire to share, but there's a willingness to obey. A willingness to obey. And that brings us to our next point. It gives you purpose. And we see that Jesus asks you, when he asks you to follow him, it requires obedience. Notice the word used twice here in verses 20 and 21. Immediately. Both brothers left what they were doing and immediately followed Jesus. In English, we read those two words, follow me, and it kind of sounds like an invitation, right? I tried to read it differently when I read the text to you this morning. But it kind of sounds just like an invitation. Follow me, guys. You know, if you want... But the Greek language is very precise here. It's an imperative. It's a command. Jesus is commanding Peter, Andrew, James, and John to hear and obey. And they follow Jesus. They obey. Obedience is a hallmark of a true Christian. Pastor David Platt, the author of the book Radical, wrote this. 
There is no potential cause, there's no potential casual response to Jesus. You either turn and run or bow and worship. Everything is different once you meet this king. This is why we know that people who profess to be Christians, but whose life looks just like the rest of the world, are lying. James Boyce agreed with this and wrote, Without obedience, there is no genuine Christianity. Those who are truly Christ's sheep both hear and obey his call from the beginning and thus enter a life in which obedience is the chief characteristic. Not perfect obedience, but a deep, heartfelt desire to obey. A desire to follow your master. A desire to, to read the commands and law of God and want to do those things. It's really a heart that can say like the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Is this the, the language of your heart in regards to, to God's law? Listen to this. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, because I consider all your precepts right. I hate every wrong path. Is that the heart language of your heart? That is the heart language of a true believer towards God's commands. They love them. They don't bristle towards them. They do them to the best of their ability and they follow them even when it's costly. And that's what we see next in our text. The call comes with a great personal cost. Charles Spurgeon wrote about Peter's, uh, Jesus' call on Peter, Andrew, and James's and John's life. He said this, They come straight away. They come without question. They come to quit old haunts. They come to follow their leader without stipulation or reserve. They come at all costs. Jesus' call to follow him is a costly call, and we have to know that. Following Jesus, these men gave up their passion, fishing. They left their families. We see that. They got up and left their father, Zebedee. They were itinerant preachers living off the kindness of others for the rest of their lives. They gave up comfort, respect, reputation. And each of the, each of the 12 disciples gave up their lives for the name. When you hear the call of Jesus to follow me, you had better count the cost. Jesus didn't hold back one iota in, in teaching this to his, to his disciples along the way, did he? He said it over and over and over again. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. I want you to look at the cost that Jesus says to these three men starting in verse 57 of chapter 9 in Luke. It 
God's word says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I think there are three tests that Jesus is giving us here. First is the comfort test. The man offers to follow Jesus and Jesus tells him what type of life to expect. No place to lay your head. No home, no place of comfort, ease, and acceptance. See, he's telling him and us not to expect a life of comfort. Don't expect that type of life if you follow me. Yet even with this warning, we expect comfortable lives, don't we? Even when he says it again and again, we expect comfortable lives. Think of the coronavirus right now and all the limitations that are put on us. I just heard just a few moments ago that Governor Mills has closed down unnecessary businesses. That means even more places where we could go are are shut down. Any irritation we experience from this comes more or less because we're lacking the comforts that we once had, isn't it? We can't go and visit our favorite friends. That's forbidden. Our favorite restaurants are closed. Schools, daycares, businesses closed. You even can't get Amazon to deliver your favorite things in two days anymore. How are you doing under this comfort test, brothers and sisters? Then there's the treasure test. He asks a man to follow him just like he did Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But the man pauses, doesn't he? The man asks to bury his deceased father. And Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, doesn't that seem rather draconian? He's just asking to do something that's proper, that's right, that's respectful of his father. But what Jesus is testing What he's testing that man and us through that is who is first in your life? Who's first? What do you treasure most? Christ or family? For some, family is the pearl of great price, isn't it? To be honest, that's something that my wife Carrie and I have struggled with for years. This is a struggle. This is a test that we are constantly under. I'm eight hours from my family and Carrie is 20 hours from hers. There's always that tug of family. There's always a family member saying, Blake, when are you going to take a church that's closer? Carrie, why don't you see if we can move, you can move back to Ohio? But God has called us here. 
I know for myself, Jesus' words here are very, very personal. And this is what we're going to, we and God will be asking that intern that the Lord brings to us, isn't he? Is he willing, as the 19th century missionaries did, to pack their belongings in his casket and move to Maine? Lastly, Jesus gives us the dedication test. Once again, a man asks to follow Jesus, but he wants to say goodbye to the people he knows. Just let me say goodbye to the people, then then I'm right with you. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you so dedicated to Christ and his mission that you don't look back longingly, wistfully? As John Piper has said, you can't keep looking back, looking elsewhere, and make Christ look great. It's like walking with your wife and looking at other women. The cost of following Jesus is high. This new kingdom requires total abandon, total dedication, and a dedication to the very end. And that brings me to my last point. When Jesus asks you to follow him, he demands that he you follow him to the very end. Perseverance. We simply have to trace out the lives of these four disciples and we see that Jesus' call to follow me is a call that perseveres all the way to the end. Tradition has it that James, mentioned here, an elder in the early church in Jerusalem, was the first to be martyred. He was killed by order of King Agrippa in 44 A.D., for the name of Christ. Peter, the early leader in Christianity, made his way to Rome. And for the name of Christ, he was crucified upside down in 64 AD. Tradition holds that Andrew took the gospel as far as up as the Black Sea and as far south as, as uh, Greece, where he was martyred there by crucifixion in 80 AD. And John gave his life to spreading the gospel, eventually being exiled for it for a number of years to the island of Patmos and died in Ephesus, we think of old age, at around 100 A.D., proclaiming the name of Christ until he died. James Boyce wrote, Following Christ also involves perseverance because following is not an isolated act done once and for all, and never to be repeated. Rather, it is a lifetime commitment that is not fulfilled until the race is won, the final barrier crossed, the crown received, and all rewards laid gratefully at the feet of Jesus. Following Jesus is not only a door to be entered, but a path to be followed. And the true disciple proves the reality of his discipleship by following that path to the end. You see, Christ bids you and I to come and follow, not for a month, not for a year, not for a decade, not for a season in your life, but for the rest of your life. Paul wrote Timothy some of the last words he penned, saying, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, 
and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, brothers and sisters, those words should not just send a chill up your neck. But those words, should you should long to say them and plan to say them at the end of your life. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for your challenges that you give us through your word. Help us to obey you, to follow you well, as you have outlined in your scripture. In Jesus' name. Amen.